Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation. Ba-da-bow. What did you say? I just end, I thought I'd I'd end this one with a like a, a drum beat sort of thing, like ba-da-bow, ba-da-bow. You know. Oh, okay. Just Albert the beatboxing it up. The human exactly. beatbox. <laughs> exactly. Just jazzing it up a little bit. Uh it, do- it doesn't always have to be funny voices. Sometimes we can add a little bit of musical flourish to it. Yeah, or just random human noises. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I figured next time I was just going to fart into the microphone. If you could fart on command, <laughs> that would be an incredible power. Uh, I imagine that if someone punched me in the stomach hard enough, one of my gut instincts reactions would be to immediately release a cloud of noxious fart gas in order to defend myself you're like a human skunk something like that <laughs> <laughs> what a way to start an episode <laughs> welcome to between the gutters where we talk about stories within the panels i'm your co-host albert and with us is our other co-host yo what's up everybody i am drew the other co-host. The other co-host. The other co-host. Yes. This week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going over a book entitled Seven to Eternity. Uh, I am personally going through a reading of a bunch of works by the same writer in my year, or as I'm calling it, my Remen year of readings. Uh <laughs> So if you happen to be following us, you'll also know that every month we're covering uh, another comic by this particular writer, Deadly Class. But Drew, why don't you give the good people a nice little rundown of the fine, fine people that worked on this book? All right. We are talking about Seven to Eternity, created by Rick Remender and Jerome Opeña. It is written by Rick Remender, drawn by Jerome Opeña with James Heron drawing issues seven and eight. The series is colored by Matt Hollingsworth, lettered by Russ Wooten. What do we call him on our show, Albert? Wooton Clan. Ain't no clan (laughs) like the Wooton Clan. (laughs) That's right. Mr. Wooton, I have nothing but love and respect and admiration for you. So, you know, I I hope you're listening and I hope you know that we appreciate you. That's right. It's all, it's all love, baby. It's all mm-hmm, love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely yeah. have been reading quite a few books that he's lettered, so his name has especially stood out to us. The he also logo follows us on Instagram now. <laughs> mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, go ahead. The, the logo is designed by Vincent Kukua. Uh, there's a credit in the hardcover that says designed by Erica Schnatz. I, I'm not sure... If that's a reference to designing a hardcover book or not, but credit is where credit's due. And the series was edited by Sebastian Gerner and Will Dennis with assistant editors Tyler Jennis and Gabe Dinger. Seven to Eternity was published by Image Comics under Remender's Giant Generator imprint. The series lasted, well, I shouldn't say lasted, the series was 17 issues. Uh, intentionally designed to be 17 issues, I believe. Although I did see something during my research that implied that originally the series was going to be 12 issues, but 
maybe uh, the story got extended a, a little bit. Anyway, the first issue was released in September 2016, and issue 17 came out in August 2021. So, as you can see, it was quite a few years for 17 issues. There are also trade paperback editions. The series is available digitally on Hoopla and probably other uh, digital comics services. Both of us, we each bought our own copy of the deluxe hardcover, which collects the entire series in an oversized format with a ton of extras. And that hardcover yeah, yeah. came out uh, last year. It's a very, very impressive book. Like, and I, I don't just mean like the the story. I mean the actual physical book itself is just very impressive to have and to hold. Yeah, it is large. It's something that doubles as a home defense tool. Yes, yes. I use it to smash bugs. <laughs> That's overkill. <laughs> I kind of hate getting uh, bug guts smeared on my comics, though. I'm not a fan of that. It's pretty gross. I mean, especially when you're getting library books and you just find random gross chunks of who knows what in it. Like, you're lucky to know if it is a bug. Yeah. But generally speaking, I try to keep my books pristine as well, but it's like you said, the book is just such a hefty piece of equipment that it doubles in terms of its uh, utility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a paperweight, a bug smasher. A door stopper. It's a criminal smasher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're really getting value for for buying the hardcover. Yeah. So anyone out there yeah. who's thinking about it, it's highly recommended. A multi-purpose, exactly. multi-functional piece of entertainment you can use it to chop up lettuce smash potatoes give little kids paper cuts yeah yeah see see so much use <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, well we have covered and will continue to discuss rick remender rather extensively throughout the year as we continue our monthly read-through of deadly class heck i think last week in our episode last week when we were talking about the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. We talked a little bit about Remender's uh, Uncanny Avengers story that featured the High Evolutionary and Counter-Earth. So he just seems to keep cropping up, and we wanted to talk about Seven to Eternity because, well, like I said, we both bought the hardcover last year, so we figured might as well put it to use and talk about it for the podcast. Exactly, exactly. We haven't talked too much about Jerome Pena, so I do want to spend a little bit of time discussing his contributions. Albert, how would you describe Jerome Pena's art, or what are your general thoughts on his work, or maybe some of your favorite comics from him? Uh, I'd say that his artwork is definitely on the higher end of comic book art, uh, like I don't know what the actual term for it would be. It's not, I don't think realism is necessarily what it is, but it is very like detail oriented and everything is very stylized. It looks good. It's, it's, it's kind of your ideal superhero comic book art, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I do think we've seen, I've seen him in a couple of things. He's done some Avengers comics. He's done some, um, 
he did that Rage of Ultron book with Remender, that that one shot that they worked on together. And, you know, he's it, it, I believe if someone told me that his work was just painstaking and took a lot of time, I would totally believe it. Heck, even in Seven to Eternity, that seems to be the case because for 17 issues, it took a while to come out with all of it. But in order for them to do all 17 issues and to have them have a uniformly consistent look and to maintain the same duo on the, on the same work, they, they did it exactly. They took the exact amount of time that they needed without having to rush him, without cutting corners. At, at least I hope they didn't cut any corners, but stuff looked good, you know? And um, as much as I like his mainstream Marvel art, I'd say that something like Seven to Eternity is ideal because it's really his chance to shine and just kind of cut loose doing art that's just based on, you know, the product of his own imagination without having to adhere to, hey, this is what Dr. Octopus looks like. And uh, this is what, you know, um, dr doom is supposed to look like or whatever right like it's it's just really him just kind of cutting loose cutting wild with what he wants to draw and i think it's pretty ideal to see it all in seven to eternity love his artwork yeah the one thing that i was wondering was i don't know what was going on behind the scenes because yeah it was was about five years for 17 issues and two of the issues are drawn by james heron so I, I don't know exactly what the reason for that was, but as a as a final product, a finished work, uh, Seven to Eternity definitely stands on its own. You know, like it, it's like you were saying, they yeah. they didn't really, there are no corners cut. Um, it's a book that feels like when you have that hardcover in your hands and you're just flipping through it, man, it just feels like one solid chunk of work because yeah, yeah, most of it is by the same artist so yeah yeah it, it's great stuff uh did you have any oh what were you about to say i was just gonna say in modern comics it's a rarity where you get to see you know consecutive issues drawn by a single person um so you know it's it's a real delight to be able to see it and i was gonna include that like his character designs are all really unique and pretty just cool to look at but I, I the thing that i really enjoy about his artwork is really um the scenery he draws like some of when you're looking when you're reading seven to eternity some of the set pieces that he draws are just grand and sweeping and mm-hmm. um there's a lot of this ancient alien architecture that he draws so he really really just makes it beautiful uh just he makes the world a really beautiful place yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think his what character like designs to... really stand out. Uh like you were saying the the backgrounds and really the world design in general is beautiful and this is a fantasy story so it's real important to be able to have that imagination and vision to execute it on the page. All of the settings look beautiful, the backgrounds are gorgeous. The characters themselves are, like you were saying earlier, they're very detailed. He he just draws in a detailed style. They're lushly rendered. They're powerful and 
dramatic in terms of their acting. The action is dynamic and exciting. He just knows how to pick powerful moments in the panels and the splash pages. It's just, yeah, just jaw-dropping work. And he really was probably my favorite superhero artist for that brief moment when he was drawing stuff like the the Uncanny X-Force run and that first arc of Hickman's Avengers. Like th- Those are some of my favorite superhero comics of all time, personally. I love those. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, in particular, that first 30 issues of Hickman's Avengers, that's something that I had a lot of love for, too, just in, just because it really felt like when Hickman came in, it felt like he was, he was kind of making a brand new day for the Avengers, and, you know, this was after years of, like, I, I forget if he followed directly after Bendis, but, you know, after having the same team of people doing the Avengers for such a long time, he he came in there and gave us these three issues that were just kind of, you know, again, not not to say that the stuff that came before it was, wasn't stuff that I had affection for, but when he came in, it was just like, wow, this really is a brand new day, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I believe it was Bendis. I don't think there was another writer who had a stint between them. Pretty sure it was Bendis. Right, right. Yeah, and then that Uncanny X-Force run. He had... Opeña had two runs on it, I think, because he did the first arc, which was called The Apocalypse Solution. That set the tone for the entire rest of the series. And I think that's probably Mm -hmm. my favorite Apocalypse story. And he also drew a big chunk of the Dark Angel saga uh, midway through that run and like you mentioned earlier he he drew rage of ultron and i know he's also done a few other comics with rick remender because he drew some of rick remender's punisher they did a couple of wolverine stories together he drew some fear agent and i think some other short stories like a deadpool story and various other odds and ends so these two creators have had a lot of time to work together on these corporate comics and now with or in 2016 when they started seven to eternity they had a chance to really cut loose and do their own thing together and they had already built up this synergy or you know familiarity with each other they really were able to complement what the other brought to the table so I, i think it all worked out to the benefit of the book you know it's like all those other marvel comics were just a training ground for them to do their own thing Right, right. Oh, I I did want to add one other thing, though. And I mean, this is kind of just a side note, but I did get to meet him in New York City uh, at New York Comic Con. And he's a pretty cool guy. Uh, I will say that much, just just generally speaking. Uh, I, I came up to him to buy a couple of his sketchbooks for a friend of mine. And as I was buying it, he noticed that I had a bay area logo on my mask and he he just kind of struck up a conversation with me and uh you know because he he actually went to school out here at academy of art i believe so it's pretty uh, you know it was a pretty formative time in his life i imagine and uh mm-hmm. he, he still has affection for the city so 
you know, we, we chatted up for quite a bit and he, he was a all around cool dude. Nice man. That's pretty yeah. high praise. Cause I feel like you tend <laughs> to avoid saying anything nice about other people. That's true. That's true. I mean, I think my general uh, setting in my head is just a constant state of genocide. <laughs> I was going to say disdain, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> I'm I'm dialed up at 11 all the time. <laughs> I definitely feel like I've been to comic conventions with you and we've seen creators and usually both of us are like, man, I don't really have anything of his on me that I would want that guy to sign. And even if I did, I don't know what I would say to him. And we just kind of usually avoid talking to them, even though they might be people yeah. that they might be people whose work we do enjoy and res- respect. Yeah, we're not really fan boys. In the, we're we're not even fan men, but it's just not a thing that we do. Where as much as we gush over the work, I. I think when you put a person in front of me, the idea of just, you know, lavishing them with praise and adulation is something that just makes me uncomfortable. But I will say that in terms of Jerome Pena, I was in the, I was in the position to talk to him of only because I was trying to buy a couple of his sketchbooks and, you know, in all fairness, he could have said absolutely nothing to me. He could have just, sold me his books and I would have went around uh, along uh I would have went on my way without having really much of an exchange with him but he well first of all I think on the surface it seemed like he was a pretty shy guy or pretty reserved cuz when I approached him he wasn't you know super animated or anything he just seemed like a normal dude who was just you know trying to huck his wares right he but he wasn't he wasn't being, a carnival barker. He wasn't a carnival barker. He wasn't overselling me on anything. He was just he was just present, you know. But when I walked up to him and he saw that I was from the city, he struck up a conversation with me. So at that point, it was like, oh, okay, we can talk. Nice, man. Yeah. 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 I think for so, me, I'm I'm just naturally a shy person. So I, I don't ever really know what to say to a stranger. Yeah. Eh. Well, have you ever run into him? Yeah, definitely will at least thank him for his work, praise his Give him a stuff. chest bump. Yeah, give him a chest bump. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> that's, that's don't how tell I him you're going to do it. Just run up to him. I look up to. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't tell him you're going to do it. Just run up to him and just throw thrust <laughs> your chest out at him. <laughs> 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 don't do that. That was a joke. Please don't assault him. <laughs> Let me be abundantly clear. <laughs> uh, Next up, I want to talk a little bit about Matt Hollingsworth, the colorist. He's somebody who's been in the industry for quite some time, since the 90s. He actually won an Eisner back in 1997 for Best Colorist. I think one of the works that he did that year was Neil Gaiman's Death, The High Cost of Living. He also colored quite a few other books that we've read over the years, uh, even stuff that we've discussed on the podcast at one point or another, like the Bendis Malieve Daredevil and the Fraction Aha Hawkeye. 
he colored uh i don't think he colored the entire series but he did color at least like the first arc or the first couple arcs of preacher uh, another book that he colored that we featured in the podcast at one point in the past was the Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. Eternals book. Mm-hmm. Did you have any thoughts about the coloring in Seven to Eternity, Albert? I think it's pretty nice because he's got a pretty, he uses a pretty wide color palette and you do see a lot of different colors in here, but it's not so overpowering or overwhelming that it's gaudy. So, I think he uses his the coloring to pretty great effect. Um, yeah. When, yeah, when I think about some of the other works that you listed here, like I think about his uh, the the Eternals that he did with uh, Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. I do remember that that particular work was something that made John Romita Jr.'s art look exceptionally good. Or yeah, I mean, I I did really enjoy the way that the celestials looked in that book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah one of the things about, about the you? colors in seven to eternity that stood out to me is that it's like you were saying earlier it, it's not gaudy so i'd say even during some of the scenes where a different colorist could have made a choice to present things with like really vibrant colors that really pop and sing like I feel like even for some of these landscape scenes or splash pages or like scenes of like beautiful uh, scenery in this book, there's even though that the colors he uses are like appropriately beautiful, I f- I f- it kind of feels like there's a slightly muted uh, filter on exactly. them. So like it really hammers home the the I guess the emotional tenor of the book in terms of being something that's a little bit more on the downbeat side like the world weariness of yeah. the main character is conveyed through the muted color palette or the the filter or i don't know what you call it color grading it's it's just that feeling you get because nothing gets super bright even though there is bright stuff in the book i mean you have things right. like energy blasts and and lasers or glowing eyes and and stuff like that uh magic bullets and and things but there's still some quality in the in the coloring that just makes everything feel like you're living in a world where there is no brightness you know like everything is still kind of dark even though yeah uh there's it's not literally dark, but it just feels dark. It's it's more about the mood. It feels like it's lived in, you know. Yeah, and very much so. The the other thing that I think is a good example of this is it's a world where there are a lot of pretty fantastic characters and creatures and beings. So you'll see creatures that are purple or green or you know just they really just run the the spectrum of all the colors that are available right mm-hmm. but again even though that's the case it's not like he goes around making like the people that are pink a blinding hot pink or something like that it's, yeah it's like exactly you said, it, it's pink but it's muted enough that it's it 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 
matches the world that they live in, right? Because the world that they live in is one in which it's a pretty dirty world. It's mm-hmm. there's a lot of mud, there's a lot of grit, and it just it's a good fusion of those colors so that it doesn't overpower the surroundings as as much as it blends in with those surroundings. Mm-hmm. How about those two issues that James Heron drew? Do you have any thoughts on his art? I thought it was good. Like it fit in, even though he's a different artist, it didn't distract too much from Jerome Pena's work. So I thought it did a good job of capturing the the feel and the aesthetic of what Jerome Pena was doing. I didn't feel like it was so different or so off-putting that it was a major distraction or anything like that. In terms of, I, I see here that he works on a comic called Ultra Mega. That's not something that I've read too much about, but I have seen it here and there on, on the racks or in the quarter bins. And I do think the covers and the interiors on that look pretty, really good. So yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad that they were, if they needed a fill-in artist, I'm glad that it was him and, you know, not, you know, like Rob Liefeld or something. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been pretty funny. Are you telling me they could have gotten the Feld? (laughs) (laughs) The Rob Liefeld. Exactly. (laughs) From the Ohio State University. (laughs) (laughs) I did read Ultra Mega. I borrowed that from the library at some point last year, I think. It's a pretty fun book. It's about superhuman kaiju fighters. And the artwork in that is pretty kinetic and just energetic. It's sort of a, I feel like James Heron's art, the tone of it, there's a quality in it that reminds me a bit of Daniel Warren Johnson or James Stokoe, just guys that really have a blast uh, drawing just flashy stuff. Yeah, his contributions in Seven to Eternity were solid. Maybe not quite as flashy as some of his his other work, but I think he rent himself in to match the tone of the book or what the book called for. Right, right. Yeah, and it's a good call that you you pick Matt, uh, Daniel Warren Johnson or James Stokoe. They it's sort of that art style that. Well, I, I wanted to say. I wanted to say that it's got that sort of graffiti art style, but I, I don't even know if that's entirely true. I think when they really go, you know, balls to the wall, that that's something that they pull off that that sort of heavy metal album cover sort of look. <laughs> yeah, and that definitely fits with Daniel Warren Johnson. We, we talked about his Murder Falcon uh, several episodes ago, or quite a few months ago, I guess, but. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think those are some artists where I can easily imagine them just hunkered down at their drawing board, listening to metal music while they draw. Right, right. All right. You want to talk about Seven to Eternity? You want to talk about the sure. book? Yeah, man. Uh, I can give a brief synopsis. I'll, I'll just give the synopsis that's provided by the book or or by the, uh, whatever's online. And uh, 
you know, that'll be our spoiler free, um, you know, just general discussion. So uh, the God of Whispers has spread an omnipresent paranoia to every corner of the kingdom of Zal. His spies hide in every hall, spreading mistrust and fear. Adam Osidious, a dying knight from a disgraced house, must choose to either join a hopeless band of magic users in their desperate bid to rid the world of the evil God or accept the God's promise to give him everything his heart desires. Yeah, so that's the the book description according to the book itself. Yeah, what'd you think? I think that's a good, straightforward uh, synopsis of the series because I was trying to explain what the series was about to somebody else recently, and I realized that I couldn't do it in a succinct fashion. It's a story that actually feels pretty complex and there's a lot of different parts going on and i think the summary from the image comics website does it well in you know a handful of sentences yeah i mean i think if you just look at the plot there's a pretty straightforward simple plot but like you said it's deceptively simple in the sense that there's so much more to the book to really discuss and explain but that being said do you want to just give your uh just kind of your general thoughts on 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 the book itself like how you felt sure man so overall i definitely love the series i think i don't know if it's my favorite thing i've read from jerome Opin- uh from rick remender but it's probably my favorite art from jerome Pena. in terms of the mm-hmm. story i i think Maybe it's just because this one was shorter and we have an ending. Uh, so in, in some ways, like, I can't fully judge Deadly Class yet, but I'd say of the two, uh, I probably felt strongly, felt more strongly about Seven to Eternity, as especially mm. as something that, like, resonates or just hit me. There's a lot of fascinating aspects to Seven to Eternity because it's it is a genre that I feel like we don't see too often. Like this is some kind of space fantasy story. Like it it feels like uh the world kind of feels like one of the more recent Final Fantasies where you got like a mix of magic and technology. Uh, people have guns, but it's also a world where people use magic bow and arrows and stuff. So there's like this mix of technology and just the sorcery, sorcery stuff that I kind of associate with role-playing games. The plotting mm-hmm. is pretty dense. There's a, a ton of characters. There's not a whole ton of exposition. You just kind of figure things out as you go along. And you kind of need to pay attention. Which I actually think adds value to the book. Because it's something where I definitely missed stuff as I read through it once. So next time I reread it, I think I'll appreciate it even more. Because, you know, now that I have understanding of the overall general story i can pick up on all the other little details next time i give it a shot but there's a lot of depth to it so always appreciate 
comics that provide that meat, you know, that give us something to chew on, not only from a plot and character standpoint, but also from a world building standpoint and a structural storytelling standpoint and a thematic standpoint. So there's a lot of things working in favor for this book that I genuinely love. Yeah, yeah. I think I have a healthy respect for the book. I I will say that, um, yeah, I, I've been reading a lot of Rick Remender's works this year. Uh, so this isn't, this, this just happened to fall in line with everything else that I've been reading. And, well, prior to going on this podcast, you sent me a bunch of Reddit posts from people and just kind of what they had to say about the book. And I don't know. Okay, some of those critiques might have been a little meaner or dismissive, while others actually voiced things that I had felt when I first read the book. Because I do think that the world building is pretty complex. And there's there, there are periods and times where it just feels like yeah, like you said, there's a lot of details you miss just because it really requires you to pay attention. And that's just how he does his world building in this particular instance where uh, it, it gives you a lot of stuff and kind of res- requires you to retain that information. So uh, I did find that as I was reading it, I was constantly flipping back and forth or stopping myself to try to re-remember things as they were coming out. Uh, Re-remember or (laughs) re-remender? (laughs) Re-remember. But yeah, I would catch myself reading something and there'd be details that I would ignore or or I would just kind of gloss over. And then when it comes up again later, I'd have to be like, wait, what was that? And then I'd have to go back and check for, you know, I'd have to go in search of whatever that certain thing was to try to make sense of it. But I will say that in writing my notes for this uh, podcast, taking the time out after having done one read through of it and putting myself through the motions of trying to reconstruct the story while skimming the book, it did help me to make more sense of what I was reading and what I was looking at. And I do think I was able to appreciate it more on in writing my notes of it and i do think that yeah like you said uh if if i was to read it again with a more attentive eye to what i was reading without having to focus so much on just the plot i i would probably be able to pick up a whole lot more Mm. so I, i do respect the book i i don't think i'm as dismissive of it no i'm definitely not as not dismissive of it but you know i i did i will admit that i did voice some of the opinions of some of the detractors of the book mm-hmm. um i don't know well let me put it this way uh having read quite a few of his image stuff this this year and still reading some of his works I don't know if Seven to Eternity is necessarily my favorite thing that he's written, but I I do respect it and I 
enjoy it. And I do think Jerome Opinion's art is just top notch. So there we go. Yeah. So what we have here is one of those instances where I have way more love for it than you do, but you still appreciate the thing and you ain't hating on it. Exactly. Exactly. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Way to sum it up. (laughs) And that's the end of the episode. (laughs) All right. You want to go... You want to try to do some chapter breakdowns, or do is yeah, there man. anything else Hit you want to discuss? Hit us up with the chapter. Uh, how, okay. what, what do you call them? The, the trade paperback uh, breakdowns? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I basically decided to give a summary of each trade paperback because I felt like that was the most efficient way to go over the plot and the story. And uh, yeah, and we'll discuss it as we go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Seven to Eternity, Volume One, The God of Whispers. And this is issues one through four. From a journal entry, we are introduced to the Osidius family. The world is, is threatened by Geralt's Sum, the Mud King or the King of Whispers. Geralt's is an entity with the power to possess individuals by enticing them with the promise of their heart's desires. His reach is now extensive with a foothold in every household and every community. Though Sidious family long ago saw Geralt for what he was, and they were cast out for their resistance. Though Sidious family have built a life in exile when Geralt's when emissary and son attacks, burning their farm to the ground and murder, murdering their patriarch, Zebediah. Upon his death, the eldest son is extended an offer. The survival of his family or his loyalty, Adam Osidius will have to make the long journey to give his answer in person. As Adam sets off, he learns that he is dying of a sickness and he wants his last act to be one that will save his family. He bids his wife and daughter farewell, and as his daughter Katie prepares to join him, he denies her and commands her to stay behind. After a long journey, Adam arrives at Geralt's stronghold to der- derisive whispers and mockery. People have nothing but ill will towards his family. And as he approaches Geralt's, there is a moment of hesitation and tension before Adam bends the knee. As they discuss the terms of his submission, Geralt reveals that he is aware of Adam's deterioration, so his submission is meaningless. But Geralt offers him a cure if Adam truly submits to him. But before he can give an answer, there is an attack from the Masak, the only remaining resistance left, and they are on a mission to put him down for good. As chaos ensues, Adam is is cornered by Goblin, one of the Masak, and is offered a chance to join them and to clear his family's name. The Masak have neutralized Geralt's power, but his son, the Piper, intervenes. And with that, Adam makes his decision to side with the Masak. Geralt is beaten and restrained, but the Masak have no intention of killing him because killing him would mean the death of all he, who are bound to him. They must take him to the wizard Torga to break the bond. As one of the Masak act as a decoy leading Geralt's force away, we see that Katie has disobeyed her father and has come to follow, to follow after him. As the party make their way, make their way, they learn about one another and how Geralt's affected each of them. Despite being powerless, Geralt is still a threat, using the power of his persuasion to sow discord. 
At night, Adam is put on watch but falls asleep. And as a result, Geralt is able to make able to murder one of the Masak. Tensions run high as some of the Masak question Adam's loyalties for how for now he is able to remain with them, but they are left wondering if Geralt had a chance to escape, then why didn't he? And that's the end of volume one. All right, all right. Yeah, I thought yeah. the very first issue was quite striking. Like that was a really great issue that immediately sucked me in. I think I feel like reading it in the hardcover uh, without really, I, I wasn't really thinking about it in terms of how the original story was divided up into arcs or trades. I did get the impression that like all 17 issues functioned as like one continuous story. So actually reading it in the hardcover felt pretty ideal to me. So he hearing you uh, break it up into like the first trade paperback arc, I guess, is kind of interesting to consider how they decided to like pace out the events of the story. But the, I think from the first yeah. arc, the thing that really stands out to me is the first issue and the introduction of the various characters. It's a story that begins by giving you this impression that it's going to be a sort of traditional good versus evil story. Yeah. Like the hero yeah. is... He joins these rebels to overthrow the tyrant. And I don't know. It, it feels like most stories would spend like most of the story doing like most of the series doing that story. Right. Like it would be. Yeah. They all show up at the beginning and, and get into a battle and then they realize that they can't win or the tyrant defeats them first. And then they have to regroup, look their wounds maybe build up their forces rise or up. rise up, gain experience points, build up yeah. their party, you know, and then go on exactly. another journey to fight this enemy once and for all and, and really take them down with everything that they've learned. But yeah, this story yeah, doesn't yeah. fall into that typical pattern. It actually very quickly, the rebels and our protagonist, Adam, they end up taking down, uh, the Mud King or Geralt or the God of Whispers or whatever you want to call him. They take him yeah. down and capture him very early on. And it just completely changes the tenor of the work because it, it wrecks my preconceptions of it, you know, like on the surface, it, it seems like it could be a straightforward, like role-playing game journey uh, to see the heroes overthrow. It feels like an tyrant. epic adventure. Exactly, exactly. They could overthrow yeah, the tyrant kind of and your run of the mill. Yeah. save the nations or save the, the continent or whatever, but it's not. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think right at the beginning, you have your dejected hero, and it sets up a lot of expectations for you because you you see that the the hero is kind of, I won't say that he's plucky because that's certainly not his demeanor, but he he's part of a family of outcasts and you know they the rest of the world knows his family name and they know that they are a family of traitors 
and they look upon them with eyes cast down. And so the way that the story is set up, you think that, oh, this is going to be, well, okay, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but you know, you think that this is going to be his redemption arc where he is going to, he's going to join up with this band of heroes and then they're going to go on this journey, this epic journey, adventure of a lifetime sort of story. And I think when you look at the last issue of that first trade paperback, that's kind of the feeling that you get. We've captured the bad guy. Our, our, our party is formed. And now we have an adventure ahead of us. So we are on our way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that was the impression that I got anyways. One of the other interesting elements of the structure of these comics is that most of the issues begin with a text page from Adam Ositis's journal. Did you have any thoughts on that as a device in the storytelling? I think it's a, well, okay, so I'm going to go to something like that I forgot to mention right at the beginning of this volume of the trade paperback, but the thing I was going to say is like right at the beginning of the story, it pretty quickly throws you in because it starts off with the family being attacked and with the Piper coming down on them and just kind of messing them all up. So there's, there's not much in terms of build build up. I mean, you get bits of lore here and there as the attack goes on that sort of fills it in. But I do think that those journal entries at the beginning, they, they serve, quite a few purposes there's they serve to like give us information and insight into the characters information into the world information into the backstory so it's a good way of adding that extra layer of information but it also does a thing where it sets up our expectations in terms of what to expect of the characters and what to expect of them moving forward if that makes any sense yeah yeah, I think for whatever reason, later on when we get to the James Heron issues, I think those are the only two issues that don't use the opening text page. But all the other issues, the, that text page, it's usually one or two pages, and I, I feel like it gives us a good insight into Adam's head. Sometimes it yeah. helps us see the passage of time without having to spend a ton of pages describing or showing us what happened or doing a collage or something. It's an easy way to convey a good amount of information in a short space and just keep things moving. Yeah. It also makes things feel a little bit denser. But yeah, it, it builds up the narrative overall, adds to the world. And I don't think every comic could pull it off, but... For some reason, I feel like it works in this one. Maybe it, it is because of the that epic feeling that the story's conveying makes it feel like mm-hmm. these text pages in between or at the beginning of every chapter really have a purpose and help establish the tone and rhythm as you read it. Mm-hmm. You got anything else or you want to move on to chapter two? Uh, what'd you think of the character designs? Because we are introduced to quite a few different characters in the first volume. There's all the Mossack characters and 
the Piper, uh, Adam and his family. Uh, I guess mainly just him and Katie are the more, most significant ones in the family. And then there's also uh, the Mud King himself. Did you have any... Did anyone in particular stand out to you or do anything in the story that jumped out? I think the thing about Adam and Katie, which are kind of funny slash interesting to me, is even though they look... there's, uh, I don't really know how you would really describe their world uh, except for like fantasy i don't know fantasy old timey <laughs> like i i don't really know how you would describe it right but mm-hmm. the way that he designs their haircuts they they kind of look like hipsters <laughs> like hipsters uh, adam yeah adam in particular like <laughs> it, it looks like he could have been part of the band uh imagine dragons or something <laughs> or <laughs> man uh, imagine dragons are hipsters now <laughs> well not imagine dragons what uh the lumineers or something like that you know <laughs> like the if you've ever been to a, a bar rock band yeah exactly if you've ever been to a bar where there's a artisanal drink maker like that's basically what adam Osidas looks like he's got <laughs> almost these handlebar looking mustache uh, he's got yeah this handlebar looking mustache he's kind of got a shaved head and it's just like if they were going for cowboys like i don't know the, it wasn't quite a cowboy western look but it wasn't not not a western look either <laughs> yeah for some um, reason this comic does give the impression of a western feel like it some something about it reminds me of westerns i think it might be because we start off on a farm and yeah adam and his family just kind of feel like frontiers people or something exactly plus there's the the world wariness that characterizes adam for being part of this family that's known for being traitors and looked down upon and ostracized because of it so it sort of feels like there were some kind of outlaw people who ended up having to remove themselves from mainstream society exactly exactly and yeah, and Katie kind of has a similar look to her as well, where she, I guess she looks kind of like, I'm hesitant to say like a manic pixie dream girl or something like that. I, I don't think that's <laughs> quite right, but, but I thought you, know, you were she, about to say Miley Cyrus. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, I guess she comes off as one of those, kind of reminds me of like, Captain Marvel in the era where she had the 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 girl mohawk. Mm, mm. Yeah, I like I don't know. Uh, well, no, it's called an undercut. So she's kind of got an undercut. She's she she's kind of tough looking, like you would expect a frontiers person to look. But you know, she's also got orange hair, which is pretty indicative of a a pretty specific group of people that you kind of see out in the world is that a, supposed to be that a, was... a euphemism for something albert no no i oh, mean okay. i'm just saying that you know if people kind of if there's a general template for people that you kind of see out in the world um you could look at her and you'd be like oh yeah she kind of i could see her fitting in in this if you took her out of seven to eternity and just plucked her out and put her in like uh you know, like a DJ 
uh set or something like that <laughs> i could i could totally see her vibing out with her headset and like doing a set okay okay yeah yeah uh but in in regards to the other characters i i think the mosak are are a pretty fun bunch of characters to look at you have oh can you guess who my favorite one of them was out of all of them yeah let's see i don't remember all their names but was it was it that one lady who could like graft dead body parts to her own body (laughs) no good try but my favorite one was the dinosaur looking guy with the metal thing on his mouth Oh right, right, right. That <laughs> he was guy their was heavy. Cool. Yeah, I think his name was Drawbridge, but that's a pretty yeah, funky yeah. design. I like that character a lot. He looks kind of like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, but his entire face is covered with a giant metal guard piece or something like that. Yeah, and it opens up into some kind of energy blast or something or other. I'm not completely sure. Yeah, I, I probably should reread it to get a closer understanding of what exactly he does. But he's just a cool visual. Yeah, he is. He is. I do think, you know, uh, you have characters like Goblin and. Uh, well, okay, I'm cheating now. I have all the the names in front of me, so I'm just kind of streaming through them. But uh, you have characters like Goblin, and you have Patchwork, who I mentioned earlier, which is like a girl who can take dead body parts of corpses and like reattach them and repurpose them for her own ends. Um, Sounds like there's a guy Terror Inc. from Marvel Comics. Remember him? Oh yeah, I remember that dude. I got a couple of comics by him written by David Lapham. <laughs> <laughs> there's a dude called Monkey and yeah, I mean, he he basically looks like a uh, a old wise monkey man. <laughs> uh, I will say that in terms of the villains, I thought the Piper looked really cool. And yeah, that was a great design and a pretty maybe, clever uh, power set. Exactly, exactly. I think I've always been enamored by characters who use flutes as weapons. Like of the Flash's Rogues ga- Gallery, I did. I did have an affinity for the Pied Piper. So, are there any other villains you can think of who use flutes? I can't. I don't know about villains, but there's that one uh, Titan hero, uh, Teen Titan, the the one with the horn. Oh, okay. Uh, so you consider that uh, close enough to being a flute? I think so. You know who what was I'm that dude's about? name? Harold. Yeah, I think it. I think you're absolutely right. It's Harold. Yeah. Like H E R A L D, not H O R A L D, or H A R O L D. Yeah, sorry. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His uh, nickname is Harry. <laughs> or Hal. I don't know. No, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just making okay. stuff up at this point. You know. I mean, I don't think we have too many musical characters, musical villains or heroes. So, I think if I was to just say. Any villain or hero that uses a musical instrument is kind of interesting to me. Like, yeah, it's heck of a I remember gimmick. When I was a, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, there was a show called Bionic Six about a family of, it was an, a family of adoptees 
who were all bionically uh, enhanced. And I think one of the villains, she had like a harp that could fire like sonic blasts. I thought that was cool. <laughs> nice. Well, heck, yeah. man, there's always Murder Falcon. Oh, yeah, Murder Falcon. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why I was like so into that book. <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of the villains, there's also just uh, Geralt Sulm himself. The Mud King, the King of Whispers, uh, Old Man Muddy, uh, 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 Conan O'Brien. You know why is he Conan O'Brien? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> He's just got so many names. Why? Why? Why can't he be Conan O'Brien? <laughs> okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe to someone out there, he's Conan O'Brien. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, I don't think his design is nearly as elaborate as some of the other characters, but it's a fitting design nonetheless. It's, I think it's unassuming, but it's meant to be unassuming because he's not someone who is overtly menacing in terms of how he looks, you know? Um, yeah, I think that was the thing that struck me. He's one of those characters where if you didn't, if the story didn't tell me or position him as the antagonist or the tyrant king in a vacuum, if I just looked at the character, I wouldn't be able to tell whether that was meant to be a hero or villain, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm pretty sure that sort of ambiguity in his design is meant to be intentional. The same yeah, goes yeah. for the Masak themselves because they all look pretty fascinating. They have creative designs and that one double splash page of their introduction totally looks like the X-Men leaping into action or something. But right, it's still right. hard to tell at, at the beginning. Like You don't know uh, what side they're on. And even throughout the course of the story as we progress, it seems like like not every they're not all aligned in terms of their motives with our protagonist Adam. So yeah, it, it just feels like there's a lot of um neutrality in the designs of the characters here. Yeah, I mean speaking of which, one of the main or one of the masak that gets a lot of attention is a character called the white lady mm -hmm. and you know that's a funny name for is... a character isn't it <laughs> i think her real name is karen um... <laughs> i set him up you knock him down back to back baby <laughs> so the thing about the white lady is she's depicted as an almost angelic or saintly character her her tool of choice or weapon is a lantern and she has a lot of flowing robes and yeah, there's something almost ethereal about her or celestial maybe. Right. So I think just based on the optics, we are to presume that she's good, mm -hmm. you know, and, and especially considering all the, all the characters breaking in here to like mess up girls. Yeah, I think 
just based on those bare that bare minimum amount of information we assume okay these good guys they bads guys <laughs> yeah and exactly <laughs> those words exactly because we literate <laughs> <laughs> we know how read <laughs> oh yeah the the one other thing that i wanted to say about Gerald's that um you know in regards to his look being a little less imposing than all of the other characters right especially considering that this guy is supposed to be like the big bad of their world i think the thing that we see again and again about him is that he is not someone whose menace comes from his physical appearances the thing that makes him dangerous is obviously his power of persuasion and we learn that as the series goes on that that's mm -hmm. that's the thing that that makes him so dangerous so it makes sense that he would be he would look so unassuming right because mm -hmm. i think when you look at video game designs or story designs the impulse a lot of the times is well if you're gonna have a villain they better look like a total badass so he better have like guns coming out of him that have guns coming out of them or <laughs> knives yeah. or knives with like little extra knives and pitchforks or something just you know um kind of like okay here's here's how i think of it do you remember how steppenwolf looked in Zack snyder's uh justice league oh man i wanted to forget yeah but he was a pretty ridiculous caricature looking of a character because he he basically was a dude who was just covered in razor blades and i guess Zack snyder thought that was badass and dope <laughs> like how menacing is that his his entire body is just covered in a layer of just razor blades you can't hug him you can't touch him he's he's gonna chop you up that sounds like the sort of mentality that a nine-year-old would have. I believe that of him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, with Geralt, that's not the case at all. Because again, he he sort of has this mask that looks, reminds me of like Zorn from New X-Men. Mm. Where, I don't know if it's, it, it's not like a skeleton mask, but... I. It's, you know, Zorn's mask always reminded mask. me of a skull. I guess, yeah, I guess it's kind of a skull, sort of. But the thing is, he doesn't have any real facial expressions. The only thing that you really see are just his eyes. I don't even know if that's a mask. On girls? Yeah. But, yeah, he doesn't think, generally uh, are have... You, are you talking about when we first see him? Uh, when we... I just meant like in general throughout the book. Okay. Yeah. I I think I just assumed that was his actual face. Oh. Okay. Okay. Well, I learned something new today. I'm. I'm. But, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's his face. Uh, if it is, if it is meant to be a mask, I, I couldn't tell. Okay. Okay. I think the thing that yeah. makes it look interesting is that his nose isn't very pronounced. Like I think he has a nose, but it. Like it's 
when you're looking at him from a distance or from a certain angle, it doesn't really look like a nose. And then even when you look up close, when there are panels that focus in on his face, it doesn't really seem like he has big nostrils. Yeah. So I think that gives him quite a unique look. Yeah. It's strange because it's a, it's a design that it can look menacing, but it can also look kind of harmless in a way because of the lack of nose. It kind of depends on like the way that Opeña draws his posture, if his and especially the eyes, like the way that his eyes look usually set the tone in terms of like how menacing he looks or how unassuming he is. Right, right. Actually, like I'm looking at some pages now and yeah, you're right. He does even though he doesn't have a lot of features like it it just really seems like he's like one smooth piece except for like the teeth and the like uh ridges here and there and um you know it yeah it 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 almost feels like his mouth his nose is fused to a point where his entire mouth is almost like a muzzle kind of but <laughs> yeah yeah, you can't really I guess that's the that's the the test on Jerome Opinion's part, right? Is to take this seemingly featureless face and use whatever limited availability of expression is available to kind of fill it with mm -hmm. the character that you need. Yeah. So yeah. One more thing about the first volume that I think stands out and continues to apply throughout the rest of the series is the world building. It's something that we mentioned a little bit earlier on, but I do like how we're just kind of thrown into the story without a ton of explanation or exposition. Like not everything in the world is fully described or explained to us. We don't get long diatribes telling us everybody's name and their backstory or things like that. Instead, what we see, what we do see simply teases and tantalizes our imaginations. I feel like we get enough information about everything that is relevant to the story at that point in time. And it's just left to our imaginations as far as what all the other stuff is like all the background details or you know just the character backgrounds and things that we don't necessarily get long-winded explanations for right right i could understand why some people don't like that but i don't respect it <laughs> i feel like people who need to have everything fully explained to them that's just to me that's just not being a good reader, you know? Like, the the person who wrote the story gave us what we need to know that's important to understand what we're reading. So, yeah, to me, it, anytime I see those kind of complaints where people are like, there's just too many names being thrown around or things that aren't, like, there's no glossary or something yeah I, I can't really support that 
Well, I appreciate your your take on it. And uh, do you appreciate my disdain for the masses? No. <laughs> oh. Because uh, well, I I wouldn't say that I went into it feeling like I needed to know these things, but I did think that I don't know, maybe just as a matter of pacing. Um, I don't know. I just don't like having to read something and like constantly having to flip back and forth to try to like figure I'm things out. I'm curious though. Well, like, what but, did you feel like you had to flip back and forth in order to catch? Uh, I was like the whole thing towards the end of the book with the swamp. I really wasn't sure what was going on there. Like, it wasn't the sort of thing that I did. I, I, it wasn't something that I figured out until like after the fact. Oh, when I was looking at it again, again, and I was like, oh, okay. So at some point, the swamp was invading the the well, and I don't even know what the well is. I think the well is like what their version of heaven or something. I don't know if it was heaven, but um, I thought the well was like the source of healing and life. Like that was the thing that could right? cure people of whatever disease or. But, ailments they had but wasn't that thing the spring now i'm just not sure you've made me question it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then like like i mentioned this to you in my first reading of it like i wasn't even entirely sure what adam's power was uh initially you know like i think he could commune with the dead but he could also turn them into energy weapons or something I think if he, yeah. yeah, it just seemed like if he had a piece of their, some of their blood or something and and turned it into a bullet, which they called a nail, like when he fired yeah. it from his gun, it would make the spirit of that ancestor come out and use his power to, you know, attack whatever he was fired at. Yeah. So it'd be like me throwing the the corpse of like my grandpa at someone. Hmm. Yeah, pretty much exactly like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah, my point being, I don't, I wouldn't say that I sided with those people, those people, the, the ones who outright detested the book because, oh, you know, it made me scratch my head because I didn't know what was what. But I, I'll admit that I probably sympathized more with that. Uh, in my reading of it, but I certainly didn't feel I didn't come to the same like end conclusion that they did in terms of what how it made me feel about the book by the time I was finished with it. Uh huh. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I have respect for you. It's just those other people that were like, <laughs> I can't I can't enjoy the story because. They didn't explain what all these proper nouns are, you know? It's like, dude, right. just read the story. Yeah. And this is something that we'll, you know, we'll probably get to a little more at the end of, the, of our discussion. But it, it really is a book where reading it on or having multiple reads of it does help you understand it better over time. Yeah. So, for sure. There's definitely value in it. And yeah. I could easily imagine somebody who was maybe reading this as it was being serialized 
being pretty confused by the time the last issue came out if they only read the issues when they came out <laughs> because yeah actually, it, it took a long time for these comics to come out actually when you put it that way i could i could definitely see how that would be a frustrating experience mm-hmm. especially if you're only reading it as the issues are coming out yeah um, so there's going to be a lot of stuff you're it, bound to forget in between the m- many months absolutely. or even years absolutely absolutely hmm. but you know that's that's the reading experience for you right yeah yeah it's much easier to consume now that the entire story is complete yeah all right you want to move on to volume two yeah all right seven to eternity volume two ballad of betrayal this one covers issues five to nine the group has suffered losses but they continued on disguised as a traveling circus forces in pursuit of girl's attack destroying his cage and setting him free the masak are victorious and even kill one of garlis's daughters in the process they proceed on foot until they hit a, a fork in the road. One path being longer and less dangerous, and the other path being shorter, but through a swamp haunted by powerful and malicious forces seeking to destroy Garlis. With the piper close behind, they have no other choice but to enter the swamp. Within the swamp, they hear the voices of those that have been claimed by victims of Garlis and the piper. The swamp the, the, swamp possessed, the swamp possesses Adam and attacks the Masak, but Geralt is able to free Adam and the two fight their way out. Geralt is separated from the other Masak as Adam follows close behind, all while the Masak meet and link up with Katie. Separated, Adam and Geralt must rely on each other, and Geralt begins to use his words to manipulate Adam, offering him the care, the cure for his disease. And after much consideration, Adam decides to go with him to the springs of Zalm. As the two go on their journey, one of the Masak catches up with them, the White Lady, and she intends to bring Geralt back. She is the one Masak with the ability to neutralize Geralt's power. During the struggle, Adam uses his power to summon the spirit of his father to kill the White Lady. But after he is forced to, but after he is forced to use the bullet with his father's blood. He must admit to him that he has accepted Geralt's offer, the one thing his father would have found abhorrent. That's the end of chapter two. Mm. Yeah, actually, I, yeah. I maybe we didn't really spend much time talking about uh, Adam's father when we were discussing the first part of the book, but yeah, he definitely plays a an important role in the story. He dies in that first issue when the Mud King attacks their home. But mm-hmm. he's a character that, as Adam's father, he, he sort of he's sets the, the tone for the book. Exactly, exactly. He's the one who yeah. is adamant about his principles, and his principles were to not uh, assist the Masak in their rebellion or their battle against the Mud King, and just to you know do whatever it took to stay out of it and keep his family safe he was adamantly against doing anything that would involve making a deal with the mud king in order to safeguard his family 
Like he he would be ideally he would have wanted just to avoid everything altogether. And he really tried to impress upon Adam not to make any bargains with the Mud King. Yeah. That's that's something that will play a big role in the story. Hmm? Yeah. I was going to say, there's even a section where they have a flashback to when uh, he's a little boy. And they go into town and he talks to one of the one of the characters that's possessed by the Mud Kings, by the Mud King. And it's just this little girl that he has this conversation with. But very quickly, his dad tells him, you know, catches him and like scolds him super hard too and basically tells him you know how many times have i told you not to talk to these people and um not to expose yourself not to not to hear the promise or hear the deal that they have to offer right Mm -hmm. so it's it's just an indicator of just the kind of strict attitude that a strict attitude and strict environment that he was imposing on his own family. Yeah. Yeah. And he was committed to it. Yeah. And also in that chapter, uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention is we also see that there is, there's some history between the Masak and them as well, because one, he had a brother who was dying of some sort of sickness and they go into town to go see the Masak, you know, asking for help, and the Masak turned him away. And this this is another thing that just sort of hangs over Adam as he has to work with these with 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 the with the Masak who who are at least on on the surface doing what's theoretically right and good for the whole of Zal, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time. He's fully aware of the fact that these people shunned his family and on top of that were the direct cause of his, well, not the cause of his brother's death, but in a position where they could have saved his brother, they chose to deny him because they were petty about it. Right. Yeah. So he doesn't really, he shouldn't have any real love for either side, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And as it is, it doesn't feel like the Masak really trust him either. Exactly. The, plus, exactly. when they do capture the Mud King, there's a point where Adam is supposed to be on watch, but I guess for some reason he was being negligent, and the Mud King actually does escape his bonds. But instead of escaping... And just running away. He crushes. Yeah. Yeah. He he kills that patchwork character that we were talking about and and then gets recaptured. But it, it's one of those things that makes you, the reader, as well as the characters, wonder, why didn't he just run when he had a chance? Why did he stay and kill a party member and then get caught again? Exactly. It's it's a good piece of, I, I guess, like... Makes up. things intriguing. I, I think it's a yeah. great piece of setup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I had a question about that, too, actually, or, or, or what you were saying earlier. And 
maybe I was reading it wrong, but uh, the thing that you were saying about Zebediah and you know his his whole take on the on 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 the Mud King, right? Uh, I was under the impression that he was actually telling people he was trying to warn people about the Mud King early on, and and then it wasn't until you know they had forsaken him and everybody started listening to the Mud King that by the time the Masak had decided to do anything, he was kind of cast out. Yeah. Was, yeah. was that, was that a, a proper understanding of that or was I wrong? Uh, I mean, to be honest, I'd probably have to go back and reread it too. Cause like I said earlier, there yeah. are just details that I probably didn't fully catch as I was reading through it this week. Mm-hmm. yeah but the uh, gist of it is essentially the same like he's a guy who is staunchly against the mud king but he's also right, not right. part of the masak and he doesn't seem to have any love for them either and that's the kind of right those are the kind of feelings that he raised his family to have also yeah it's just when you see that final battle when when the white lady white lady is that right? <laughs> it feels weird saying it. Yeah. <laughs> when the <laughs> when the white lady attacks uh attacks them and this is the first moment in in the book where Adam, you know, Adam initially starting off we we've we've established that his father has already told him that you can't compromise with any of these people. You can't uh, capitulate to any of them. And right off the bat, when when put in this position where Geralt and him are separated from the rest of the group, he offers him, you know, he he tells him he knows he's dying, but he offers him a chance and has it, whether he hesitates or not, he eventually takes him up on that offer. And instead of going back to the Masak, he decides to go on this journey with him to the well because he thinks he can have it all. He thinks he can save himself, go back to his family, and that's what he wants. He's he's a guy who's who tells himself that he can have it all. And when the white lady shows up, like he's fighting. To, he's trying to justify this behavior, but in the end, what ends up happening is Geralt takes his gun and uses one of those bullets, uh, one of those nails, and he picks a random one, fires it at the white lady, and it it turns out it's a nail with the essence of his his father, Zebediah, and Zebediah just like messes up the white lady, right? And you know, just in terms of the the drama of the moment you know in a fantasy story when a character is dead they don't always have to be dead they can still be around in some form or another and for him to face off against his father right there in that moment after after citing after making the decision that i'm going to go with Geralt to the spring right mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty haunting uh way to end that chapter of the book because he he tells him all this, and then by the end of it, his father just kind of slips back into the ether, and he's just left standing alone there. 
And but like before his be... father fades into the ether, his father gives him a stare down, and you can tell that his father is pretty uh displeased. Disappointed. Disappointed. Oh, yeah. Disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's channeling his inner Kevin Sorbo there. He's disappointed, <laughs> right, and right. then without saying a word, he just turns his back on his son and walks away and fades into nothingness while Adam yeah. falls to his knees and says, I had no choice. And, you know, he's just, there's a beat there. Like, the whole scene is is drawn and executed perfectly with these long horizontal yeah. panels to totally emphasize the the loneliness, yep. being forsaken. Yeah, and and then yeah. uh, there's a beat that passes, and you 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 don't know exactly how long Adam's been on his knees, but it's probably been a little while. And and then the Mud King comes up to him, and it's almost like the Mud King offers him like I don't know if solace. comfort is the right word or solace, but right. it's it's something deeply ironic about the way that the scene is laid out, like even though it's not drawn in an overtly symmetrical manner, it's a scene that has Adam's father walking away from him. And then it ends with the mud King walking towards him. It's almost like this turning point for the, for the story. Right. And the journey that, that Adam, or not only the journey, like the, not only the physical journey that Adam will go on, but the, like the emotional journey and and like the choices that he ends up making over the rest of the series it's it's quite a symbolic two-page sequence mm-hmm. it's really well done yeah it, that's, like, the, that that's some beautiful art the coloring and everything yeah it's beautiful art but it's also just powerful drama like you know, if you're going to like just take someone's emotional guts and just rip them out, one of the heftiest places that you can go is, you know, someone who's living with the reality that they've disappointed their father to that degree. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's powerful stuff. That's heavy. <laughs> and especially if their Super father heavy. is dead and, yeah. and comes back from the yeah. dead to express his disappointment. Just to be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I came back from the grave just to let you know you've never lived up to my expectations. Yeah. <laughs> that is painful, man. That is, yeah, yeah. That comes from a deep, deep place. <sighs> All right. You got anything else or you want to move on to volume three? Let's move on. Volume three, 17 Eternity, volume three, Rise to Fall. This is issues 10 through 13. On the road, Adam begins to to suffer, uh, to soften to garless girls gradually, when they are beset upon by the sky bandits of Volmer from Scott from the land of Scott, led by another of Garless's children. Volmer holds a grudge against Garless, and upon capturing him, Volmer blinds him. Adam goes to rescue him, all while acknowledging more and more that he is compromising himself. As this is all happening, girls has reconnected with his powers and has commanded his forces to bring provisions to Adam's family who are starving back home. But with Geralt's connection restored, the Piper senses him and prepares an entire army.
army to invade the land of Skod and take back Geralt's. We learned about Skod and why Volmer resents Geralt's so much. They were land at constant war, so a deal was struck to isolate them from war. And as a result, their isolation would mean that should any of their cities ever touch the land, they would they would burn. So basically, a deal was made with Geralt's and the short version of the deal is it's essentially a monkey's paw where um, they just wanted to be isolated from these other warring lands because they wanted to know peace. And what he offered them was isolation, but to the degree where if any of them, if any of their people or if any of their land should ever touch the ground, they would just spontaneously combust, basically. Yeah, that's a heck of a deal. A heck of a bargain. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'd be too happy about that. For all of our talk of hating people and not wanting to be around them. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to really be messed up. Huh? I don't want to You know what would really be messed up? (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to explode either. If we were isolated from other people, but we still had to put up with the internet and still had to read all their just (laughs) dumb takes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The okay, so the Piper attacks and Adam and Geralt are separated, with Adam entering a trance-like state, while Geralt, who can now escape again, chooses not to. While on his while on his spiritual journey, Adam is presented with options as his whole life is laid out before him. He awakens as Geralt's Geralt is about to be slain, and in light of what he's seen, his resolve is strengthened. He believes he can have it all, and he goes off to save Geralt's, and, and as a result, he brings down the city of Skald, Skod, killing all of its inhabitants to save his hated enemy, and to, to quote-unquote save all the people who would have died if Geralt's had died. And that is the end of chapter, or trade paperback volume three. Mm-hmm. That ending is a pretty heavy moment, but before we talk about the ending of the chapter, we could probably talk about all the any other stuff that comes before it if you want to cover it. Was there anything that really stood out to you? I mean, for me, I, I think the design of that city is pretty fun. It kind of reminds yeah. me of, uh, I guess, you know, now that I think about it, there are various elements of this entire series that sort of remind me of like a Hayao Miyazaki film, just in a much darker dimension. Like Like a gritty Hayao Miyazaki film? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, like there's there's like these animal. I think one of the early chapters has an animal that's got some kind of disease or something. And then now we've got floating city that looks like a city built on these flying rocks or something. Like those are the kind of things that I feel like I associate with a Miyazaki movie. Yeah. I will say that there's there's a lot of clever little things going on here. So uh, the people of this floating city aren't allowed to, again, they're not allowed to touch any of the ground because they'll just spontaneously combust, right? So they're up here in this floating city and they're starving 
and they have to turn to piracy in order to survive. So they have these balloons that they attach to their backs and they just kind of float down, take what they need and then float back up. I thought that was really clever. Yeah, that is clever yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, the kind of fun world, world building that I really enjoy. And there there doesn't need to be like a whole bunch of explanation about those things or how those like octopus things help them turn into balloons or whatever. It's just, you know, it's just something I can look at and, and take for granted that the people who live in that world know how to operate that kind of stuff. Uh, see, that's the thing. I didn't even know the octopus things had anything to do with that. <laughs> oh, okay. I was just like, oh, yeah, they cool. They got balloons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think this is, I mean, so much of the book is already so great to look at, but this, this was a, a bit of a showcase just because you get to see all of that crazy zany stuff. And, and then you get to see when the Piper awakens, you know, all of the, the pterodactyl people to attack the city and that battle all happens. That's pretty crazy. Cause you just, you know, it, it's. For all of our talk about how we hate Marvel movies when we see a bunch of CG robots and stuff, there is something about impressive about seeing that sort of thing when it's drawn. Yeah, especially like, by a great artist. I do. Yeah, exactly. So I did think like that in this particular instance, that that whole thing where you see like a massive army of pterodactyl people attacking this floating city. That was cool. Uh, yeah. I did enjoy that. Yeah, the, the um, action and the spectacle in this book are off the charts. It's great. Yeah. It's just fun to look and at, man. So dynamic. Exactly, exactly. And when you get to the very end of it, when the city crashes, there's like a two-page spread where you just see yeah. like the remains of the city falling from the sky and just crash landing on the ground. And it's it's devastating to look at, but it's... yeah. It's just monumental in scope, too, at the same time. Yeah, and I think in the foreground, you, you actually see the rest of the other Mossack. So you, you get a little sense of scale, yeah. but they're they're pretty far from where the city fell. And it just gives you an indication of the enormity of it and the significance of it. And you can easily imagine how many of those citizens ended up dying because of that. And... Yeah. You know, certainly I'm I'm guessing that most of those citizens really have nothing to do with anything that's going on. They're just people that want to live their lives, but Adam, mm. you know, he he rationalized in his mind that the <laughs> the good of the many outweighs the need of the few, right? So right. If if he needs the Mud King to survive so that everybody else can keep on living, that's what yeah. he'll do, you know, and he tells himself that, but you can't help, even as you're reading it, you can't help but question if he's doing it for everybody else or if he's just doing it for his own needs because he needs the mud king. Exactly. Exactly. I think I think if you look at the the general trend uh of of the story and just where it's going, you can watch as Adam is just when faced with these different decisions time and time again, he makes these decisions and he justifies them. And I think this is a pretty big moment because up to a certain point, 
you can kind of, well, he, he definitely justifies little things and just tells himself that it's this or that or whatever, or it's just one life or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But at this point he's weighing the life of an entire city against all these people on, you know, that are connected to Geralt, the mud King and, you know, at what what point do you essentially allow you know hundreds of thousands of people to die to save you know either an equal amount of hundreds of thousands or maybe millions who's to know who's to say right like i don't know what the scale of their population is right mm -hmm. but there's still there's a weird calculus that you apply to it that just doesn't seem to make sense anymore because that after a certain point it's like okay well if this many people had to die in order to save this many people it almost feels like a wash at that point why why are these people any better than the the city that you just dropped from the sky yeah and not only did the drop probably kill a whole lot of them like they still have that curse right so when the curse happens and uh the people spill out touching the ground I imagine a whole bunch of them are just going to spontaneously combust and die that way too. Really, there are no survivors, I think it's yeah. fair to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it just feels like so much of this book is about Remender putting Adam Osidus in this position where he just has to choose between these two things and they just constantly escalate to worse and worse situations. They constantly escalate into worse and worse situations, and he seems to consistently make, at best, questionable choices, but usually he just makes bad choices. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It would like, be like think... if, if you were playing like Mass Effect or something, and you just kept making the choices that led to everybody always dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? And yet you still keep telling yourself, uh oh i can do this or i can do that or whatever um it's just it's questionable yeah uh, there's this scene there's this scene where he yeah he 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 touches the lamp that uh the white lady was using and he he speaks i, I don't even know what the creature is inside the lamp but uh this he goes on this spiritual journey and I'm yeah, I'm looking, I'm trying to look for it right now, but he it's in that moment where they basically offer him a, a choice. And in that moment he he makes the decision where he essentially goes, Okay, I'm I'm gonna try to have it all. So oh okay, okay, I found it. So so at one point he's talking to I think he's called the librarian or something like that, and he's communing with him and he basically lays out all these details for him and he says uh i'm not the only one uh wait no, no, no. Uh, so he talks to him and he goes now the test will you serve yourself or will you serve zal right those are the, his options and instead of giving a straight answer he just goes his literal answer is i am zal you know and mm -hmm. Maybe that's like a really dramatic moment for some people, but it's also a pretty delusional moment because 
he's given this option of, look, I I've presented you with the trajectory of your life, and yeah. I'm showing you what what's going to happen. So, are you going to do what's good for the betterment of the people, or are you going to do what's good for yourself? And he tries to convince himself that, well, what's good for the people is what's good for me, because I am the people and they are me. So, ultimately. <laughs> Whatever the answer is, whatever, exactly. Whatever the answer is, like, whatever I choose, it must be right because, you know, I am the people. (laughs) The people is me. (laughs) Man, when you put it that way, he just sounds totally delusional. But that's the thing. He is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what uh, makes the structure of the story so fascinating because although on the surface, it begins, it seems to begin as this traditional hero versus villain narrative. It quickly becomes something far more complex. Like, I would definitely uh. say that Adam is the protagonist. And then when the story starts, Geralt is the antagonist. But then pretty quickly, Geralt soon becomes the deuteragonist, you know, like the character of secondary importance who supports the protagonist. And then the other. Mossack rebels, as well as like other forces like Volmer, they end up becoming the antagonists to replace that void. So you end up having like the story where the guy you think is going to be the villain of the entire thing, he ends up working with the quote unquote hero of the piece. And for like a big chunk of the story, they're like, it's, it's almost like, um, what do you call it? Like a buddy cop movie or something where this weird pair. Yeah has to team up together yeah. and and go through a gauntlet of stuff even though they don't yeah. necessarily it, always like each other they need each yeah. other to some extent and that's why they find themselves united against everybody else there are even bits of dialogue where they begin to joke with each other and not necessarily commiserate but you know for a guy that Adam is supposed to hate he is sympathizing with him way more than he should yeah, you know? it's uncomfortable. There's something deeply uncomfortable about yeah. it. He spent so much Adam exactly. spent so much time early on hating this guy for killing his father and you know doing all that other stuff to the rest of the land, but they spend enough time on the road together, they f- form this bond and it's it's disconcerting, you know? There's just something well, really strange it rem- about it. Yeah, it reminds me of a post that you sent me or or you sent on one of our group chats like a couple of weeks ago where someone was talking about uh what's it called that Patty Hearst syndrome or uh, oh, uh no, Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome syndrome yeah yeah right where like someone is held either hostage or by circumstance or whatever uh, against their will um and over time they are warped to the ends and goals of the people that are holding them hostage mm-hmm. and it's maybe he's not being held hostage, but he's definitely started out this situation not wanting to be there. Had he had the choice to not be there, he probably wouldn't have wanted to be there. But because circumstances dictated where he was going to end up, he ends up leaning into this guy's, I don't want to say friendship, but company. He leans into this guy's company. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else or you want to move on to book four? We can move on. Let's wrap it up. 
All right. So this is 17 Eternity, the Springs of Zal. This is issues 14 through 17. This is the final volume. Adam is on the doorstep of death as Geralt drags Adam to the Springs of Zal. Upon arrival, the gatekeeper gives Adam one chance. All he has to do is answer honestly. So when asked why he wants eternal life, he answers, to protect my family. This is a lie, and he is immediately rebuffed. As Adam and Geralt recover, the Piper attacks. This is their only chance, and Geralt takes Adam to the spring again, emphasizing that Adam has to tell the truth. Geralt promises Adam he will get him to the spring, but in return, Adam has to promise not to separate the bonds between him and the infected people. Once Adam is on the is at the gates to the spring, Geralt battles the Piper, who suspects that Geralt is plotting against him and that he wants Adam to be his heir to the Empire. Adam, meanwhile, accosts the gatekeeper, murdering him, and in the moment, finally admitting that he is doing all this for his own selfish reasons. All this is done just as the Masak and Katie arrive to witness it. With with the rot of the swamp spreading, Adam battles Goblin, who offers him one final chance to do what's right and to give girls up and to die with his integrity, to which Adam responds with betrayal, killing Goblin on the spot. Meanwhile, as Geralt lays dying, Katie comes across him and he speaks with her, discussing the danger to her father. Discussing the dangers to her father and how she can help him. Adam is taken to the spring and is fully restored by the spring and now intends to bring Geralt to justice. Now that he's gotten everything he wanted out of their deal, Adam attempts to save Geralt's life, but Geralt refuses to be saved and reveals that he has actually poisoned and killed all of Adam's family, thus rendering Adam's newfound immortality to be a curse instead of a blessing. In a rage, Adam beats Geralt to the edge of death and demands to know what the purpose of it all was for. And Geralt tells him that he never intended to live forever. He merely wanted to prove a point, which was that anyone could be corrupted, even the son of his greatest adversary. And now, having proven his point, he can die satisfied. But he has one last revelation, which is that Katie made a deal with him and has bonded herself to him. That by beating him to death, he might as well have killed his daughter by his own hand. In the future, Osiris, Adam Osiris, sits atop a throne. He views himself a tragic figure, but this is all a part of a delusion. A delusion that is apparent now has always been a part of his character. Sitting in his throne room, he is disturbed as attackers come for him. It turns out his assailant is his daughter, Katie, saved from death and returned to life with the sole purpose of serving justice for the world. That is the end of volume four. Yeah, I thought that was a great ending, man. That was a really yeah strong ending. Something that you don't really see coming, but in retrospect, feels kind of inevitable. Like that had to be the ending, you know? Like there wasn't a way that this could end with Adam you know, living into the sun, riding off into the sunset or living his best life. In fact, if anything, he was living his worst life before 
his daughter comes back to finish him off. Right, right. But the thing that makes him that that makes him fascinating is just like how Remender writes his character over the course of all 17 issues because he's not exactly a hero. Like on the surface, when we first begin the story, ostensibly he's supposed to be the hero of the piece, or at least that's the impression that, that the story wants to give us. But he's not really a hero, and I don't even know. I don't even think he's a good man. If if anything, I think it's easier to make the case that he's an awful man. <laughs> but he's definitely yeah, yeah. complicated. He's a complicated man, a complicated character, and that's what makes for an exceptionally compelling story. He doesn't come off as likable for the most part, at least not to me. But mm-hmm. because he's so fascinating, it's the kind of thing that makes him a rich character and makes him have depth and you want to find out how his story is going to end. In a lot of ways, I'd say the same thing applies to Geralt because he's very complicated too. I don't think he's necessarily a good man. Uh, he's not... Uh, probably definitely isn't a good man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was an understatement for sure. For sure. <laughs> 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 he, he definitely wasn't a good man either. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, I, I don't. As far as I can tell, there wasn't any interpretation of that where he was. But okay, was, it's it's hard to come up with any redeeming qualities for the guy. But uh, for some reason, I think Adam somehow feels more tragic because as we follow his journey, we just see him slide further and further down this dark path as he continues yeah. to compromise bits of himself while internally rationalizing and justifying his decisions until yeah yeah he becomes the worst version of himself that we can imagine it's yeah. just like all these little bits of himself that he compromises like if he had just obeyed his father to begin with or at least adhered to his father's creeds then maybe like a lot of this pain and suffering could have been avoided a lot of the bloodshed and stuff but he i think the that story with the or that sequence with the the guardian asking him uh to tell the truth about why he wants to see this the spring when when adam tells him it's to because he wants to protect his family like there's a a whole build-up of a moment that i think is really well paced on the page where he's he spends minutes pondering his answer and how he's going to say it even though in his heart he believes that he has the correct answer and then when he finally says it's because he wants to protect his family yeah the the twist at the end of that issue is that the guardian looks at him and he's like that was a lie <laughs> and you're like yeah wow yeah <laughs> like in retrospect, it makes a lot a lot of sense. I think in the moment uh-huh. I was surprised, but now that I've read the whole story, it's the kind of thing where you can go back and and look at the indications that were pointing this way, like all the selfish choices that he ended up making. It really was yeah. all for himself, you know. Like he he kept telling himself over and over that he wanted to do it to uh to save his family, but really yeah. it was for his own selfish purposes yeah i do think 
if we take this and apply it to the real world, I do think there are a lot of instances in reality where we definitely look at people who care about their family and look at that as a virtue. And we say, yeah, man, the someone who cares about his family is a good person. But there are, I think there are a lot of people who aren't good people and they try to apply that logic as a justification for just the worst, most awful kinds of behavior. And yeah, and, and I think if anything, the worst kind of people are the ones who use their family and it's really cynical and it's really insincere, but they essentially use their family as some sort of shield to excuse themselves to it's like, yeah, we've got to behaviors. protect our family values. That's why we had to march in, in Charlottesville or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I did this. I was willing to kill another person for the sake of my family. See, I loved my family. How could I be a bad man when I'm willing to kill for my family? <laughs> Who wouldn't kill for your family, you know? And that's, I think that's the thing that we blind ourselves to because, you know, family inherently is a good thing. We look at it like it's a good thing. And uh, it's a noble thing when someone wants to take care of their family. But there's also... A, a warped reflection of that that exists, right? Uh, especially if your family are doing bad things or they're your fa you're a family of just crap people. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's, totally. It's something that actually reminds me of Breaking Bad, also, because okay, I'm gonna spoilers for Breaking Bad if anyone's watching this, but <laughs> the the entire impetus for the show is he walter white receives uh starts he goes to the doctor and he gets a diagnosis of cancer and as a result he wants to provide for his family and because you know they're in dire straits financially and he doesn't want to leave them uh in poverty with his medical bills when he dies so when you start out the story you're watching him and you're like oh he's just doing a good thing he just wants to care for his family even though that means he's going to turn to selling meth to the community you know <laughs> and you look at him and it's like well it's a tough decision but he had to do the hard thing that's that's what you do when you're a good man but over the course of the show as he begins to move away from that rationale it really more and more he he uses his family as a shield but he really is just pointing his decision making towards more of his own personal indulgence, his ego, his pride, his his vanity. And he he just covers it up by telling himself that, well, I'm doing this, all this in the name of my family. I'm a good man because I'm willing to go to jail for my family. I'm willing to, you know, just ruin my entire community with drugs yeah. for my family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there we go. Uh, it, it does feel like one of the ongoing themes for, or one of the largest themes for this series is the idea of compromise. And I do think that the way that the entire journey for this book works is, yeah, you take this guy and you start him off more or less at zero. 
and you take 17 issues to take him on this journey where you just see him slowly and gradually make these decisions that just erode him over time. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, it's like you said, he's the worst possible version of himself. Yeah. It's a fascinating, yeah. it's a fascinating trip into just this guy's spiral into darkness. Like at yeah. the beginning of the story, yeah. he is a sympathetic character. And then you just follow him along and then you continue to see him do things that are questionable and then do things that go beyond just being questionable, but downright condemnable. And you can't yeah. help but, you know, change your opinion of the man by the time you get to the story. Like there's still something tragic about the fact that there was stuff in his life over the years that either pushed him or motivated him into making the choices that he made. Like perhaps if he lived in a different kind of world, he wouldn't have had to become a bad man. So I guess from that perspective, there's something tragic, but you know, at the same time, he's still responsible for his choices and he did what he did for himself, you know, not even for his family. He did it for himself. Yeah. Yeah. I um uh, I wanted to mention one other thing. So we talked about the Masak earlier and how for the most part a lot of the Masak look at the Osiris family as they they look upon them with derision and you know they just kind of detest them. And yeah. I would say that there is one exception. There's a character by the name of Goblin who yeah. He's the guy who invites Adam to be on the team. And over the course of the series, he's constantly giving Adam the benefit of the doubt and just giving him time and time again, just these opportunities to prove himself. And, you know, again, the, this, this, this group of people, the Masak, like Adam shouldn't really have any real love for it, for, for any of them, but, uh, the goblin, oh, not the goblin. Goblin decides to tell him, uh, over and over, "Hey, you can redeem your family's honor. You can do all this for them." And in this final volume, the two of them fight it out, and he is willing to lay down his life for that principle, for the idea of redemption, because they're fighting it out, and he he beats Adam. He's standing over him with his blade. And, you know, they're they're talking it out. And instead of giving the killing blow, he, he this is what he says. You like deals, so I'll make you one. One of my own. We go now. Take the Mud King to jail. That's it. No springs, no eternal life. I'll be, and his response is, I'll be dead before we get there. And Goblin just holds out his hand and he says, but you'll die intact. I'm offering you your soul, Adam. And Adam looks to the ground, thinks about it, and he offers up his hand. And it looks like they're going to go, you know, hand in hand. He's going to do the right thing. And Adam mm-hmm. just stabs him in the chest and kills him on the spot. Um, and he kills him and he goes, it's okay. This wasn't for nothing. I'll take Geralt's to Torga. See him separated from his servants before he's executed. I'm sorry. 
I never saw it going this way. Maybe we take on what people expect us to be, or maybe you were right about me. Yeah. There he goes again. Yeah. Trying to justify his actions. And this is one of those things where like, again, it just reiterates and hammers home the point that Adam is not a good man. Like out of all the characters in the story, it feels like Goblin was the one that came across as the most heroic of them all. And in this moment, he, he shows Adam mercy. Like he, he probably should have killed Adam. Adam would have deserved it at that time when he was at, you know, on the ground at, at his blade, but Goblin gave him one last chance to make this deal. And yeah, like once you see that scene, he paid for it. Once you see that scene and all the stuff that Adam says to him, yeah, it's too late, man. He's irredeemable. Yeah, yeah. But there's also something really fascinating about the scene, too, because if we consider how one of the main themes of the series is the idea of integrity and lies and betrayal and and corruption, like, however you want to mix up those elements or think about how those elements are related to each other. I feel like there's an interesting dichotomy at play because Adam ostensibly the hero of the story is characterized by his family's penchant for betrayal. Whereas Geralt, the so-called villain of the piece, he's actually characterized by being a tyrant who always keeps his word. So in a way there's an honesty to Geralt that Adam doesn't have. There's yeah, it just makes things yeah complex. Like the characters are yeah complex. They don't go in the directions that you expect them to go, and they don't fall into these easy cookie cutter tropes. Like there's even a scene. Uh, I I didn't mark down what issue it was. I probably should have. But there's a scene when Adam and Geralt are kind of licking their wounds and hiding out from the Piper. There, there's a moment where Geralt says to Adam, like they're talking about his his uh, choice to, um, they're talking about Adam's choice to embrace his rage and and go for revenge. And Geralt chastises him and and basically says, because wrath leaves a mark everyone can see, it gets results. The truth is, it's more satisfying to inflict pain on one enemy than to give love to one thousand strangers. And it's, I don't know, for some reason that scene just stood out to me. Because maybe from some point of view, or I guess in Geralt's own twisted sense of self-worth, he he might see himself as the kind of person who gives love to a thousand strangers by, you know, essentially being a tyrant and ruling over society. Whereas Adam has dedicated his existence to, you know, ending Geralt himself. Just putting you know all his efforts into into revenge, but I, I, yeah, I just feel like that comment of Geralt has something to say about you know how people generally view the world. You know, like people, it says something about humanity. You know, and I I don't think it's I think it's intentional that Adam is. And his family are are people are characters that look like 
you know, actual humans. They're not like fantasy creatures like or fantasy humanoids like a lot of the other characters in the book. And I, I think what Geralt says in that scene does speak to human nature. Just the idea that people are so quick to to hate and so quick to anger and rage and and look for revenge when they feel wronged but it's not very it's not very satisfying to love a, a bunch of strangers it's, it's yeah. much more satisfying to hurt the one guy that you hate <laughs> <laughs> it's more satisfying to be wrathful <laughs> yeah 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 so I find it really That's fascinating a, that the so-called villain of this story has that sense of self-awareness to be able to recognize and articulate that. And it just feels like Adam, he he either doesn't get it or he just doesn't care. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing that makes him such a... That makes Geralt such a... I guess frightening kind of villain it's that idea that the devil tells you the truth you know Mm -hmm. of course it's it's a it's a malevolent twisted kind of version of the truth to to like manipulate you into doing something that'll like be the wrong choice but yeah like on some level it is the truth yeah right exactly and there's there's something more menacing no, there's definitely something more menacing about that than, you know, some stereotypical, like, movie villain, right? Like, mm-hmm. something like the Joker or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah. I I wanted to talk about the ending a little bit, too, where it when we finally get to the end of it, the revelation of it all, that uh, Adam Ositis is sitting atop this new empire as the new king right and you don't really go into too much detail but what you realize or what you learn is this whole time all of these uh caption pieces all of these narrative pages do these journal entries that you see at the beginning of each issue or most of the issues they're all part of a dictation that this guy is taking of this guy's of adam's life He's mm-hmm. dictating his life to this guy, right? Yeah. So that puts you in a position as a reader to realize that, well, this guy was an unreliable narrator all along. You yeah, know? exactly. Like, Super self-aggrandizing really... and everything. Exactly. So he sees himself as this super tragic figure. And there's this point where the girl in the story, uh, I forget her name, the you know, for all of his talk of family and all these people that he loves, the the girl with him, Javalia, this, yeah. this girl that he, he's seen when he was a kid, and I guess you could say he had a crush on. You, you can tell that there's, like, something between the two of them, right? Even though mm-hmm. he's married, he keeps telling himself, I'm doing this for my family. But at the end of it, he's the king of his throne. He's married, or not even married, I don't know. He's with this woman. And they have a child together. And at one point, she even says to him, I forget exactly what she says, but she sort of looks at him mockingly and says something to the effect of, um, so at one point, 
he goes and he sits on his throne and you know this is after all his dictation and he's he's just sitting there just kind of full of himself essentially and her what she says to him is uh, what he says is do you hear that a far off music strangely familiar and she goes i haven't heard anything all day over your delusional account of things <laughs> just just to clarify that this guy is like so full of himself that for the history books he created this account of himself as this tragic figure completely absolving himself of any sense of responsibility of any of the things that he's done because he can tell the world and he can tell himself that well these are things that just happened to me i had no choice and no agency in the situation and i just ended up being dealt this hand how could you blame me for that <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah 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 it's uh it's messed up man he's messed up <laughs> yeah definitely it's interesting to look at this story in the context of a lot of the other remender comics that we've read because i think like a lot of other remender comics this one also examines the consequences of one's actions, especially the violent actions that one performed. Like, I, th I feel like that's something we see crop up in a lot of Remender stories. And then the other thing that I feel stands out is it's another story with a male protagonist who happens to be a bit emotionally distant and definitely even unlikable at times because you might say it's because of the emotional ravages he's had to face over his life. Like I think about Marcus from Deadly Class or Wolverine in Uncanny X-Force, The Punisher, Flash Thompson in Venom, probably other characters in, in the books that you've read that you can attest to. But I guess the twist with this one is that the whole reason why Adam comes across as emotionally distant is is because he is delusional you know like he there's something wrong with him from the beginning and we didn't realize it until we got to the end so it, it's it's fascinating to see like how his life and the tragedies that made him who he was caused him to end up the way he is but at the same time clearly he's responsible for his own actions and you can't really like this any kind of uh sympathy that the reader might have for his backstory is sort of outweighed by the basically the evil that he accomplished throughout the course of the story as well as the revelation that he was an unreliable narrator all along yeah 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 i mean it's Another thing that I'd point out is when you talk about the consequences of his actions and the consequences of violence being a recurring theme throughout the body of his works, the very last scene of this story is his daughter mm -hmm. coming back from the dead to strike mm -hmm. at him, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it turns out that the witch Torga was able to bind a vessel to his soul seeking justice and you know, what you see is Adam looking at her in shock as she pulls off Spirit Box's mask, Spirit Box being one of the Masak, and to reveal that she's underneath it all along. 
And she says, you hide here in isolation from a kingdom of pain you built. Your corruption led you to trust no living thing. And then the last scene is just this shot of her firing one of her arrows into him until everything turns black. And then the final line is, but it was a dead you should have feared. Yeah, that's a heck of a final note to end on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just says everything, right? Like Mm -hmm. if, 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 if the decisions that you make, if, if those do not reverberate with consequences that you have to live with, then it's not about necessarily the living that you have to live with. It's like she said, it's the dead. It's, it's the, the screams of the people yeah. that you've harmed. That's the thing that you live with. Yeah. All of those bad decisions, all those him slaughtering that city, that, that all kind of catches up to him at the end. Like there's no escaping yeah. what he did. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. One of the other things that stands out that I thought was pretty, I guess, I'd say, yeah, poetic. Or, or And to me, it's just something that I really appreciate about the story is the title, like the, the reveal uh, of the title within the story. Because... For me, like the whole time I was reading the comic, in the beginning, I just assumed that it was called Seven to Eternity because of the seven party members at the beginning, you know, like when they start the, when they basically start their quest, like the Masak and Adam, uh, I think it added up to seven. I, maybe I'm, I could have miscounted, but I, I feel like I just, I think I just assumed that the seven, referred to the people who were in the story uh, going on the adventure together. And Mm. eternity was just, you know, like some kind of poetic euphemism for going to the edges of whatever they had to do, or I, I don't know. But that was the basic concept of what I thought it was about. And then when I read the last issue, it's the conversation where Geralt tells Adam that he's actually killed his family and he sent, he sent them into eternity. So that was an interesting twist on the title. Like that's the kind of thing Mm. that, uh, I don't know. It's just stylish and much appreciated for me. Yeah. We've talked about Reminder's penchant for misdirection over in a lot of his writing. And I do think that in this particular instance, he really takes that misdirection to another level because he really makes it about, it's almost a meta take on the misdirection because he uses all of the elements of the comic itself to subconsciously guide your mind to a certain direction right so he gives a book a western feel he calls it seven to eternity you kind of associate that with titles like the magnificent seven so you know as you're reading it you kind of think that this is about these characters going on a hero's journey when by the time you get to the end of it that's not the case at all um yeah and and that's maybe it's him 
having fun with the reader, but uh, yeah, I, I guess I do appreciate it in the sense that if the joke is on me, then, you know, I don't mind because it's clever. That man. was, yeah, it's clever. It was a lot of work to get to that point. Uh, it, it was earned, you know, you didn't just yeah. pull it out of your butt and like, just make a thing where it was like, get it seven to eternity because you know, it's about seven minutes in heaven or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know you're thinking of that hayden christensen uh, movie now <laughs> or, or or uh that game where like kids make out or whatever <laughs> you never heard of that <laughs> now i remember what you're talking about yeah in a vacuum i i just realized that that could have been pretty weird <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh it's like I I feel like now I have to explain it. <laughs> it's a party game where kids make out with each other, you know, like uh, yeah, seven minutes in heaven or spin the bottle or something like that. <laughs> yeah, games that I never played when I was a kid. I was robbed in my youth. <laughs> well, it's all right. I never played them either. I don't I don't think I knew anyone that played them honestly. That was probably more of a suburb suburban kid TV kind thing. of thing or a tv yeah. thing yeah yeah like I, I there never seems a... to be any point in playing spin the bottle when as a kid all my friends were boys anyway so <laughs> but, yeah it, it wouldn't have been very fun i didn't really have any interest in kissing any of them <laughs> not at all <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right well you got anything else Thematically, I wanted to touch on one of the big themes of the story. We've talked about it as we were describing Adam's actions and stuff, but it's the theme of compromise because this story is clearly dealing with uh, compromise in various ways. And the most obvious one is the protagonist being a character who consistently chooses to compromise his ideals to the point where uh, he ends up, you know, becoming the worst version of himself. So, I don't know, did you have any thoughts in terms of, like, what this story had to say about compromise? Um, I don't know, like... It's it's pretty apparent that that's one of the major themes of the comic itself. I think as I was reading it the first time around, I I was looking at it and there are bits in the book that talk about things like populism. Um, they do mention things about how, you know, it was easy for him to manipulate people because they just wanted to look for a reason to mm -hmm. hate others, right? Things mm -hmm. like that. And I, I think when I initially read the book, there was a part of me that I I looked at the timeline of the book. I, I looked at what I knew about Reminder and I, 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 I kind of put together some ideas in terms of what did this have to say about life in a post 2016 post Donald Trump sort of life, right? What yeah. what was he trying to say? And I I I still am not a hundred percent percent sure that 
I have an answer to something like that, right? And I think I've moved away from that idea a little bit since my initial reading of the book. Like, I, it's stuff that's still in there because it. I think the book did come out around the time, like, I think it came out around December 2016 was when the first issue came out, I want to say. And at that point, I believe that was like right after the election you know the the election being around November. So, if he was feeling anything, so yeah, really... I'm a, I'm looking at the Image Comics website, which has the release dates, yeah, for the issues. And Seven to Eternity number one came out September 21st, 2016. So right around okay. the peak of election time. Yeah, so elections would have been around November. So if anything, but like all, Everything all that leading up to the Trumpian rhetoric was already floating in the air at that point. So I don't exactly I don't know exactly. if if like it, it kind of depends maybe on when Remender started developing the ideas for the story and whether yeah. uh, the current or the contemporary politics at the time started to influence him as he was like preparing for, uh, you know, his final script and everything like that. But because yeah. the story took so long to come out, I I I personally I don't have any like confirmation about it. I haven't read any interviews with him, but I just personally think that he probably did intentionally include some commentary on what was going on yeah. in America at the time. Like it it feels like it'd be hard to ignore that and there are things in the yeah. text that seem to explicitly comment on what was going on. Like you mentioned populism and how people were like there's a scene in in the story where that where they describe the backstory of how people were given into fear and they wanted to raise up a leader to help them help them feel safe even if it was at the cost of oppressing other people other groups mm. and there's just something directly trumpish about the description of the mad king's rise not it's not to say that i yeah. think uh Geralt's functions as um a direct a trump analog analog of trump like it's it's not like that one-to-one -one, but there yeah. there is something there in terms of the commentary on social yeah. politics yeah i mean i think the thing that i wonder is whether whether what he wrote changed after after the election right like i yeah i definitely could see what he wrote in the lead up to it and especially if he had certain assumptions in terms of what the world was going to look like after the election um but i think after the election there was definitely a, a harsh reality that set in one that a lot of people weren't prepared for one that wouldn't surprise me if it changed his outlook on what he was trying to say or write after the fact, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd, I'd be curious to see if there were any changes due to that. Uh, I think the one thing that I was contemplating was, well, if we look at you know, this in terms of compromise, maybe there's something to be said of the idea of, well, for the people that had to that made a, a a certain decision or a pact with you know 
with whatever their beliefs or their value systems are and told themselves, well, all of this stuff is okay as long as I'm doing it for family or, you know, uh, as long as I convince myself that I'm doing it for the right reasons, right? Mm -hmm. But even then, that's that's just still me just kind of grasping at straws. I don't know that I even believe that to be what what he's trying to get at. Yeah. But that was like the the one thought that did cross my mind, which was, well, yeah, like I I think I think there's an understanding that you can look at people who voted a certain way as having their own amount of priorities and whether you agree with it or not, they convince themselves or they just generally believe that, Hey, this is, this is the, the, the right thing that I believe. And, you know, regardless of who's affected by that, I can justify it because, you know, in my heart, it's right. But yeah, again, I don't know if that's exactly what, Reminder was going for or not yeah it feels plausible that it could be so i, I think that's yeah. a fair thing to question as we consider what the text has, actually has to say yeah i mean i think overall it just the the easier claim is that it is a story that is just purely about the idea of compromise and what happens to you what does it take for you to get to from point A to point B, right? Like yeah, it's what, about questioning how important are your principles and would you compromise your principles in order to do certain things? Like in this case, compromise your principles in order to save your family. But yeah, you know, you can apply that in various other directions. It's like on, on yeah. one hand, there's like the idea that you should never compromise, not even in the face of Armageddon. <laughs> but on the <laughs> right, other hand, right, right. <laughs> Got to have our Watchmen <laughs> reference. But on the other yeah. hand, there's like a pragmatism to life as well that sometimes, yeah, if on like I, I do agree that there are, or I do believe that there are certain things in life where if you have certain principles, yeah, you should never compromise those. But there are other things where it's okay to compromise, you know, like a lot of, yeah. a lot of relationships are about compromise and it's not about like one party exerting dominance or winning a battle over the other side it's just a way to that's it me you're dating hey hey (laughs) (laughs) but i mean Um, it is fun to read a story that makes you think about how far you would go to compromise your beliefs or your integrity in order to, you know, whether it's to save your family or, you know, some other imaginary scenario that you can concoct, you know, there's an engaging mental exercise that you can play out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if this is, appropriate but i think about like anything you say is appropriate because it's our podcast there's no one here that's gonna be like you can't say that on between the gutters who do you think you is well i i think of an example a, a fairly recent example of someone who just did something just like awful and 
you know, people who took that principle of, well, it's my family and uh, therefore, like, you wouldn't know if you were unless you were in that position or like I did what was right. But there was that murder that happened uh, like a, a, like a year ago, maybe a couple of years ago, where that one girl, Gabby Petito, died. And, you know, what ended up happening was um, her boyfriend kills her and he comes back from the trip and the parents don't do anything about it because, you know, maybe maybe they don't know what happened, you know, if, if we were to take them on face value. But what ends up happening is he comes back uh, from this trip and she's not with him. And then he spends time with his family before he disappears in the woods. And then, uh, you know, before the cops can do anything and take him to court and like serve him justice, um, they find his, his his body in the woods. And, you know, supposedly, supposedly there is this admission of guilt in a notebook, blah, 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 whatever, like. But but the whole thing is he comes back to his family and he spends like a good amount of time with him. And, you know, he, he's just committed this heinous act where he, he kills this young woman. And instead of, again, if I'm going to give this family the benefit of the doubt, which I'm hesitant to do because it just feels really questionable. Yeah. But like the whole thing is if he came back and uh you know supposing that he he tells them everything about what happens and their response is well you're our son and we love you and you know what we're going to we're going to let you have this time with us and we're going to help you evade the cops or whatever like that's not a noble thing I don't look at these people like they are good people or like they did something, uh, you know, out of love or whatever. Scumbags. Like, it's disgusting. Yeah. It's totally disgusting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Just, you know, not to, not to make it too real, but, you know, just, just this idea that you can't always just drape yourself in, in this illusion of family and make it feel like, Oh yeah, th- this is a good thing because I-, I did it from a family. Yeah, you know, it's like I love my son. I wouldn't want him to get arrested. Yeah. Well, then you should have raised him better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it- it's it's also that kind of mobster like mobster mentality or gang mentality has that same thing where it's like you don't snitch because snitching is you know not an admirable trait because we we just don't do that here right but snitches no, why get put in ditches yeah exactly snitches <laughs> you, know? get you don't tell on your friends you don't tell on your friends because that's what friendship is about it's like mm-hmm. no man if, you, if you're an awful person like regardless of like our relationship to one another like nah you're you, you did something awful you gotta go i agree yeah. man well, any final thoughts on Seven to Eternity? To on you, Drew. <laughs> what? What did you say? I said I would not hesitate to snitch on you, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what that pause was there for. I thought you were waiting for me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I will do my best First to ch- not do anything that would require you to snitch on me. <laughs> First so chance it- I get, I'm telling on you. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I look forward to the consequences. <laughs> All right. Well, do you want to go over recommendations? You know, this was a tough one to for me to think of some recommendations because I couldn't really come up with, uh, off the top of my head, I wasn't able to come up with a, a story that kind of carried on any similar or comparable themes or even had like a comparable tone or, or plot or something. Like, I'm sure there's something there. And I bet after we finish recording, I'm going to like, you know, brush my teeth and then realize, oh, shoot, why didn't I think of such and such comic? That totally would be a good read yeah. if you liked Seven to Eternity. So, but uh, yeah, I couldn't think of one. So I'll, all I really have right now is I would recommend a couple of the other Jerome Pena comics that we mentioned earlier, specifically Uncanny X-Force. The first four issues of that, it's a story called The Apocalypse Solution which I think sets up the entire rest of that series. Like, you should read the whole run. It's definitely worth it. But the first four issues are Jerome Pena doing his thing. They look great. And it's a story about, would you murder a child if you knew that child was going to grow up to be Apocalypse? <laughs> it's not about, would you go back in time and murder baby Hitler? It's, would you murder a child if he was going to grow up to be Apocalypse? <laughs> So would you murder Hitler if he was... So it's just, would you murder Hitler as a baby without the time travel? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, since it doesn't have time travel, I'm all for it. <laughs> I forget, you did end up reading Uncanny X-Force as a whole, right? Yeah, you bought me the issues uh, a, a while back, so I, I did read it a while ago. Um, it's not fresh in my memory, but it, you know, it's a it's a solid Reminder run for sure. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I forgot um, to mention this while we were talking about the about Seven to Eternity, but there was something about the end of it that reminded me a little bit about the end of Uncanny X-Force. And I, it's not like the two scenes parallel each other, but I think there was just something about the pettiness of it all that really got me. But the scene at the end of Seven to Eternity when uh, Geralt finally manipulates Adam into killing him, like, in a way, it's like Geralt's getting the last laugh because he was able to, you know, have his final revenge on his worst enemy, uh, Adam's father, um, basically proving that he could corrupt anybody. <laughs> and he, you know, he, yeah, Geralt gets what he wants. And, like, there's no getting around it. He he puts one over, you know? Yeah. And then yeah. in at the end of Uncanny X-Force, uh, I guess I'm about to spoil it, but the very end of Uncanny X-Force has Sabretooth manipulating Wolverine into killing his own son. <laughs> and he did it all for the pettiness. Like, there's just something about it, man, that that got me. Like, I read that scene <laughs> in Seven to Eternity, and I just thought, I see you, Remender. That's, that's totally one of your <laughs> things, man. <laughs> Being petty. <laughs> exactly. He's good at writing petty villains, man. I love it. There's something right, very right. entertaining about it. He would make He would write a cool Lex Luthor. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I I had a hard time coming up with things to recommend to people as well, because if we're speaking of things that are exclusively on, that explore the concept of of uh, compromise and, and and things like that, I I don't know that off the top of my head I could really come up with a story that 
just covers that topic uh, as I can't think of anything that covers that topic. And I certainly can't think of anything that covers that topic as well as that. But so uh, the, the first thing that I would recommend is, um, as I mentioned, I'm going through my Remen year of comics. So I am currently in the middle of reading a bunch of Rick Remender comics that I've uh, collected from quarter bins over, over the past couple of years. I've finally completed a whole bunch of sets and I've just been making my way through them. So I have just read Tokyo Ghost, which, you know, I, I'm not going to go too much into it, but it's, I do think it's Reminder exploring some other ideas. Uh, he does have a villain who's capable of uh, possessing large swaths of people. I thought that was kind of funny that he he used that idea twice. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, I, I do think that that was a it's a good series. I recommend it. It's it's something worth checking out. It's him and Sean Murphy. It's uh, talking about, I guess if I had to boil it down, it's a comic that explores the, it makes a commentary about modern technology and addiction to the internet, essentially. Hmm. Um, aside from that, I'm currently reading his comic Low. That's something that I really do enjoy. I enjoy quite a bit. It's probably more of a conventional adventure story but i do enjoy it i do recommend it i'm not quite done with it yet but yeah it's good i i i look forward to it and i'm i'm curious to see what he's going to do at the very end of it uh i'm hard pressed to imagine that he's going to do something that's so ridiculous that would turn me against it uh you know me being this far into it so what if it was all yeah. a dream Oof. <laughs> what if Oof. It, what if it was all a dream by a time traveler who was infected by nanites? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Why? Why? Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh he's better than that. I would hope so. Um, but anyways, uh I guess I will say that talking about it now. I did come up with a couple of things that do remind me of Seven to Eternity. Uh, I did mention Breaking Bad, so I guess I'll just recommend one of the most popular television shows in all television history <laughs> that <laughs> everyone talks about. But yeah, if you want a story of some of someone compromising themselves, I'd say Breaking Bad is is one example of that. Uh, Another thing that I was thinking of was there's a movie that came out in like the 80s, I think. Hmm. And it was called Angel Heart. Yeah, here I have it in front of me. It's a movie starring Mickey Rourke and Robert De Niro. It's directed by Alan Parker. And it's a story about, well, uh, I guess it's giving it away uh, once you get to the end of it. But it's basically a story about a guy who sells his soul to the devil and him having to deal with the consequences of that decision. Mm. Yeah. I haven't heard of that movie. I'm not familiar with it, but with uh, Robert De Niro and Mickey Rourke, that, it just sounds pretty compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's one of those movies that didn't do so well at the time, but 
has cultivated a decent enough uh, like cult following in the years since. That's cool, man. Yeah. And one final Jerome Pena recommendation. I would again, I go back to the Jonathan Hickman Avengers. That was what that was uh, the first three issues from 2013, and uh, I'd probably say it might for me it might be peak Marvel Opeña. It's just like beautiful work. Dean White colors him, I think, on those issues, and yeah, it's just a spectacular three issue introduction slash reimagining of the Avengers as a concept. It works as a standalone story, but it also works as the opening salvo to Hickman's entire run on Avengers. So yeah, if if you haven't read it, it's totally worth seeking out or just even rereading if you have read it already. That's all I got. Nice, nice. Well, if there's nothing else, then if anyone has anything to say or any questions or wants to make any sort of uh, comments or contributions to the conversation, please do. We want to hear from you. We want to know you guys. So feel free to hit us up at between the gutter, between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. You can also hit us up, DM us on our Instagram at between the gutters, or you can uh, go ahead and uh, tweet at us. Uh, we don't have a blue check mark. That's how cool we are. Mm-hmm. It was, we ain't paying for that. We ain't paying for that. We we didn't have a blue check mark before it became cool not to have a blue check mark. Yeah, exactly. Stuck <laughs> <laughs> uh, Um Yeah, so you can tweet at us if you want. Uh, other than that, yeah, if you're listening to us on whatever platform li- you're listening to us on, like, yeah, please uh, share, like, subscribe, let other people know about it. We want more followers. I'm not saying that we're necessarily looking to be in a place where we can give up what we're doing on a day-to-day basis just to do this full time. But, you know, it's just good to be appreciated. We just want to teach people about good comics. We're not thirsty for followers. We're not. But we are hungry. (laughs) We'll take it. (laughs) If you follow us, we'll take it. (laughs) Definitely. All right. Well, our next episode will be covering Deadly Class Volume 5. There's a chance that episode might be delayed because there's a trip next week that we're going on with some other friends. So we'll just have to see how the timing works out. But uh, yeah, whether it's next week or the week after, we'll be covering another Rick Remender comic with our monthly deadly class autopsy or whatever you want to call it read through yep thanks for listening everybody this is between the gutters signing off peace out bye everyone